Hi, this is Peter Guest speaking. Um, I am going to be sharing several podcasts um, on the topic that I've started writing a book on called How to Help a Loved One with an Addiction. The purpose of these podcasts is really to fast track the book which I'm battling to finish. I've been busy for five years now, so I'm wanting to fast track it. An incident also happened um, earlier this year. It is now the 8th of January 2021. Actually, this incident happened late late December, early January, um, where I was working at the time on a project. And um, the son of somebody, someone that I knew, um, I, met, I met this person and uh, they had absconded from a treatment center and uh, essentially had come home and... Uh, the the person's family was not at home. I was there at the time. And uh, I remember the, the look in his eyes. I remember the, the, the hardness. I remember the desperation. I remember the sadness. Um, wanting to be with his family over December, January, but he couldn't. Um, desperate. Um, angry with the world and a multitude of different things and uh, this this was a pivotal experience for me because I said it's time just to stop planning and thinking and hoping I'm going to get my book and my podcasts done so today is one of those days where I say now it's time for me to do it before all the cars come past my residence and start making a lot of noise because the time is now very early in the morning. I woke up uh, just after uh, three o'clock and it is now almost half past five in the morning. Right, so this first podcast is going to be uh, really an introduction to the whole topic. Now bear in mind that I'm going to be sharing bits and pieces of the book um, initially and when I say bits and pieces it's going to be really be summary sections of the chapters of the book because of the 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 critical need right now to go through the main end section which is about interventions so the book itself uh, covers several themes one of the themes is just understanding addiction and part of understanding addiction is aspects of causality. What what, and why? People often ask me that parents who come to see me about their children or a loved one comes to see me about the, the addict or someone who has signs and symptoms of addiction and they often ask me that question. What have we done wrong? Especially parents. What have we done wrong? Why is he or she an addict? Why do they do this? Why can't we help them stop? Why do they keep running away? Why do they steal our stuff? Why do they treat us with such disrespect? Why do they threaten us? Uh, and, and a million questions they have. And some of it is about causality. 
And in the book, um, I talk about the three rings, the three intersecting rings of uh, what I call causality. There's no one cause. There usually are, and I've, in my experience, there's always multiple causes. So I've put the three rings without going into detail. The first ring is what we know well, uh, or talk about well, is nature. It's about our DNA, our chemistry, what we've inherited from mom and dad, um, separately their histories, their DNA, but also the new DNA of mom and dad, and the vulnerabilities that go with that, um, the predispositions to mental illness or addictions or whatever. The second ring is called nurture. So it's nature and nurture. Those are the common arguments in the scientific field regarding human behavior and human thinking and behavior change. The second circle, nurture, is about nurturing uh, since the early, especially the early six years of your life. Do you have a stable family? Uh, is there a, was there a divorce? Uh, is there um, alcoholism already present, some other addiction, other mental health issues present in those formative six years? Those formative six years are very powerful. Was there stability in the home or was the family traveling all over the place? Uh, was mom and dad away for long uh, um, periods of time? As in case of, of one of people I know very well for over 40 years. He didn't develop addiction but he developed um, um, a major depression and bipolar condition. His, his life was very unstable. Mother and father, very well wealthy, very intellectual, intelligent, were both jet pilots. And they used to travel all over the world. And he was left alone. Um, so the effect and impact of your parents, of loved ones, and also obviously as time goes on, your teachers... Uh, the school principal, uh, people in superior, superior positions to you and, and how they affect you, your elder brothers, your elder sisters. Uh, do they bully you? How do they treat you? Do they leave you alone? Do they disengage from you? Were they so busy with their life that they just, you were invisible? You didn't have a voice. Um, you, you didn't have feelings. You were sort of numbed out your feelings. So these... These are conditions that set you up, set us up for depression, anxiety, um, neuro neurosis, um, problems, um, affective disorders, as well as addictions. Just remembering that addiction is a mental illness. It's seen as a mental illness. Initially, physically, uh, one gets addicted and then mental illnesses follow. Or, or the opposite way around. There are medical illnesses, there's medical mental issues, there can be physical issues, and that can begin to feed into an addiction. We won't go through that anymore, except to say the final one for me is the most critical ring, and that is choice. And it's based on my readings of the work on choice theory, initially called control theory, written by William Glazer. And we'll talk about that in the next section a little bit, and then we're going to go on to overview the book. It's now um, time to go.
Thank you for listening so far. I hope this series is going to be very informative, uh, very f- full of hope, uh, full of giving you clarity about some of the questions you have and inspiring you to get into action. Whether you're a counsellor, whether you are a, uh, a re- recovery assistant working in a treatment centre, whether you're a sponsor using the 12 steps, whether you're a parent, whether you're a loved one, a supporter, this background is going to help you to understand and stay engaged in the, um, in the recovery process, getting a person treatment, uh, during treatment, after treatment, um, and supporting those people through life. Right, this is part two of the podcast on how to help a loved one with an addiction or multiple addictions. I'm just doing an introduction. introduction. This is introduction part two. What I want to cover now is uh, the last part of what I was speaking about, the three rings, because this is quite important, I feel, in understanding the background to addiction. A lot of people, as I've said, have questions about this. And this is just my framework. It's just a theoretical framework. This is not a uh, um, scientific factual base. There is scientific dilemma, uh, discussions around nature and nurture and obviously choice. I've never heard discussions about the toy choice theory or the control theory of William Glazer in terms of addiction work. But that's where I've linked those together um, um, and where I came into contact with it, uh, with the, this thinking and the, actually the three rings when I was um, working in George as part of my, um, my training as a social worker. Right, um, choice, choice is about a person consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously responding to the nurture and the nature. So if a person has, for example, a disability, physically a disability, the choices they will make, or environmentally on the nurture side, where do they stay, what parents do they have, and how do they respond to their drinking, for example, to their drugging, to their lifestyle, to their coldness, to their emotional explosions. Um, What happens with a child? Does the child uh, retaliate, climb into their shoes? Does the child rebel and and leave uh, school early or leave uh, home uh, or engage in in, in arguments and fights with the parents because they are unhappy and in pain? These are all choices that that a person makes. A person growing up in the kind of a ghetto environment, a traditional a slum or a community which is impoverished and vulnerable and there's drugs all over the place, there's gangs and there's alliances between gangs and there's fighting between gangs and children have to make a decision which gang they're in, otherwise they get targeted. So what decisions do people make? Um, do they start smoking uh, grass because everyone's doing it? Um, do they? Does a person not decide to not drink, not smoke? Uh, they decide to stay at home. 
they decide to leave home, go to another community. Um, these are all major, major decisions um, that are sometimes made unconsciously and sometimes consciously, and they play a radical effect or impact on the destiny of the young person and eventually the young adult and eventually the adult. Um, and the role of addiction for me is linked to all three of those circles, nature, nurture, and choice. And for me, the choice theory, the choice approach, or understanding choice, for me, gives the greatest deal of hope. Why I said say that is, if I have made decisions that have taken me directly in line of fire and get me into an addiction, or early addiction, um, if that is the case, then I have two important opportunities. The first opportunity is that I can take responsibility for my conscious and unconscious and conscious and unconscious decisions. That in itself is liberating. That in itself is compassion, is empathy towards myself. This gives me hope. This gives me an understanding of the second point around this that after and part of taking responsibility for my choices and acknowledging that there were choices I made, it wasn't just dad or mum or the environment or the drug people, uh, the, 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 uh, 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 the friends that were into drugs or the dealers that were pressurising me in the community or a friend that slipped me a joint or uh, the person that introduced me to, to drinking at a pub. The second part of the decision or process or choice theory is that if I made choices that got me into trouble, I can make new choices to get out of trouble. Systematically, if I take the choice to not use the, the drug of choice, if I put down the drugs one by one by one, a day at a time. I get involved in groups. I get, I get involved in therapy. I stay in therapy. I stay in an environment where there are uh, people that are trying to get healthy. Then the choice has been made for me. I've made the choice. And I say the choice has been made for me because I've decided my destiny is different from what other people have said. And, what des and the destiny seems to have been for me up until that time where I'm desperate. I cannot break out of this addiction. I've tried thousands of times and it seems like I'm useless. I'm hopeless. I have got a condition that will never, never heal. Those are things that people that have come to me for treatment have said in their mind or they believe in their mind that there's no hope for them anymore. And parents come to me and say, is there hope for my child still? He's gone to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten treatment centers. Will he ever recover? The answer is, yes, he can. Yes, she can. And I say that on the ground of the fact that we are, from my spiritual point of view, we are made in the image of God. We are made with divine DNA. We are made not to be slaves to anything or anybody. We, are, we have divinity in us. 
And that divinity gives us and will always give us hope for the future. Okay, I'm going to um, conclude part two of the introduction. It seems like this is going on for a long time, but this is important for me, laying the groundwork of what we're going to be doing in the rest of our podcasts and as we're going to jumpstart or springboard it into the whole theme of taking responsibility to do an intervention with the ones that you love who's maybe resistant to treatment and um, and and what are the options because there are many intervention options it's not just one thing and I want to cover those thank you again for listening this is Peter Guess and this is part two hi this is Peter Guess and I'm dealing with the, the topic, uh, the third section of the introduction on how to help a loved one with an addiction. Just to give a quick um, orientation about the rest of the, of the book, uh, which I'm going to refer to in some of the ta- chapters, but at this stage just a quick overview. The first section is Understanding Addiction and the key concepts and the features uh, included in that is the the aspect of causality and the three rings that I've mentioned. Part of understanding addiction, I might have made this a separate chapter in the book, I can't recall, is what I've called the defense system. And the role of the defense system or defenses in the progression of the process of addiction or the progression of addiction. Now some people have just talked about this as denial. But denial is actually only one of many different defense mechanisms that interfere with a person getting help and responding to help and getting the right therapy for them or getting sustained change um, it also affects the role of relapses. So, as I see it, theoretically, um, a defense system that is actually pathological, it keeps the addiction intact, it keeps it rolling on, it keeps a person believing that they have a problem, for example, that is unsolvable, or they cannot fix their addiction, or that they're just destined to be addicts, or that mom and dad were addicts, so they are addicts, Um, or the person sitting at the bar and uh, looking over at the bar and saying, well, thank goodness, I'm not an alcoholic, the other guy sitting there, he is um, uh, very drunk, he is uh, mumbling, and he's making a nuisance of himself. He's an alcoholic. But the person sitting in the bar who comes in virtually every day and socializes with his friends and has about three or four drinks a night, he doesn't see himself as an alcoholic or having a problem with drinking. He just sees it as friendly socialization. So minimization of problems. Denial of, yes, I don't have a problem. Other people have got the problem. Um, 
I can stop at any time I want to. All of those kind of statements, uh, some of them are linked to denial. Some of them are linked to other things. When I project my problem onto other people, I say, my wife is the person who's forcing me out of the home. She's causing all the problems, or the economy, or my job, my boss, um, or whatever. I, I live in pain all day long with my back. And so I started using um, uh, prescription drugs as well as over-the-counter drugs. And so it's not my problem. It's, not, it's a doctor's. The doctor did this. So there's a whole lot of different defense mechanisms which I believe have a very strong impact on the, the development or the etiology, the fancy name is, the etiology of addiction. And it's different for different people. The next point I uh, deal with in the book is called Understanding Treatment and Recovery. I give the reader a good understanding of what happens in treatment, the treatment centers I've worked in. And the, the most current treatment, which is in many treatment centers or rehab centers, is an integration of the 12-step model um, with the evidence-based model of science and psychiatry and psychology. It's a mixture of those two. But I'm not going to go into those details now, but I want to just say that for me it's important that a parent or the lo you as a loved one understand, or a counsellor, understand the process or the possible processes of treatment. There's no treatment center that's exactly the same. But how does inpatient treatment differ from outpatient treatment? Because outpatient treatment, I believe, is an underutilized treatment approach, um, which I feel should be considered before inpatient treatment. Unfortunately, I think too many people are just dropped into the inpatient treatment because the treatment is seen to be first class, world class, and going to fix everything. The problem, there's problems with that, and I will deal with those at a later stage. And then what happens after, after treatment? What do you do? What does the loved one do? What does the counsellor, the, sp the sponsor do? What, what can they do? And also, what happens during treatment that impacts on you, the loved one? How can you support that treatment? How can you pick up things that are important and feed them back to the team? Because remember, that the therapeutic team have just been given this person for three weeks. There's a lot of collateral information that the treatment center needs from the family members, from the significant others to help understand and fast-track the treatment process, whether it's outpatient or inpatient treatment, or whether they're just going to 12-step uh, groups. Then finally, I deal with, uh, before the final aspect, the second final part is, is post-treatment and relapse prevention. I've mentioned that a little bit, but for me, the relapse prevention planning that happens in a treatment center is something that the loved ones should know about and have discussed and worked out their role in terms of relapse prevention. And no one wants to talk about relapse prevention. 
No one wants to, to think that there's going to be a relapse. And obviously the best approach to this is to prevent it rather than to have to cure it. The last section is a series of interventions and explanations of different interventions which I'm going to deal with in the next um, section. Hi, this is Peter. And I am now dealing with, I think it's part four already, of how to help a loved one with an addiction. And I'm going to be dealing with this section now, which is in a few, in a few um, parts, um, about interventions. When I say interventions, it ranges from what I would call a gentle, mild uh, approach, uh, a low-key approach to an intervention. For example, and, and that is usually when a person is compliant, when they're willing to come, they are they're non-combative, they are willing to cooperate. And sometimes people come on their own. In my experience in, in outpatient treatment centers, Many people just pop in, they come on their own because they know things have been going wrong or mother and father said to them, come on, go and see these people at this center. And so people just drop in. Uh, and those drop-in centers, outpatient uh, treatment facilities are very key um, to our society to pick up uh, and identify the early development of addictions as well as the later development of addictions but helps people change the the addiction pattern um, with their permission and because they are uh, willing to cooperate and they come voluntarily. And then there are the interventions that are the tougher ones, the ones that parents don't want to look at, uh, counsellors don't want to do. In, in many cases, sponsors don't want to even look at people in the 12-step in movement. They don't want to go that group. They, they have a totally different approach to a person um, reaching or the need to reach a rock bottom. And so they leave people for whoever knows how long. That is, for me, an, an irresponsible approach. And we'll be discussing that as we go along. So... I'm going to discuss mainly four different interventions. And these are, let's call them external interventions. This isn't the intervention where a person walks into a treatment center at a walk-in um, at a walk-in center and makes an appointment and comes to see the staff. I'm not going to be dealing with that one because that is self-initiated intervention, if you can put it in that way. I'm going to be talking mainly about four types of intervention. The first one doesn't seem like an intervention, but it is, and that is an assessment. And that can be done by a professional person, a professional assessment, or it can be done, as in my case, what helped me enormously, was when I found a book and I did my own assessment. And that was sort of a self-diagnosis. And when I read through the X amount of questions, I realized I don't just have a bad habit. I don't have, I'm not really struggling with uh, a problem here. I have 
all the signs, if not most of the signs, of an addiction. And therefore, I need to get into help urgently. Other assessments are done by professionals, by a psychologist, a social worker, a psychiatrist, or a team of people. Sometimes people go for an assessment at the treatment centre before they go into the treatment centre. Uh, there's many ways to do assessment, and I'll be covering that in a, a little bit. Number two is something that doesn't seem like an intervention. It's called motivational interventions or interviews or motivational enhancement. Uh, now, motivational interviews are seen as part of a wider approach to interventions called motivational enhancement. And there are many different techniques. I'm only going to deal with one of the, the main techniques that I've used um, most often. I haven't used it a lot. I've integrated sometimes with my assessment work. Um, but it certainly has become a strategy which I've implemented um, to great effect. The third intervention is the core intervention that is being written a lot about and, and, and where there's a lot of controversy around it. Uh, and it's been given many names. Sometimes it's just been called an intervention. Um, other people have called it um, a caring confrontation, which is what I like to see it as. I like the wording, and I'll explain why that wording is so important to me. And then the fourth one is legal committal. Now that might seem the most brutal um, of all interventions, but there's very, very, very good news in terms of that uh, seemingly final option uh, and sometimes that final option is not a final option it's it's interlinked with the possibility discussed during assessment or the possibility that emerges out of motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement or it comes as a possible option during a caring confrontation depending on the severity of the signs and symptoms and the damages that the addiction has already had on the individual, their relationships, their work, their finances, etc., etc. So I'm going to be dealing with these uh, one by one in the next uh, podcast. Thank you again for listening. Hello, this is Peter Guess. I am dealing with the topic of interventions as part of a series um, on how to help a loved one who has an addiction, which is a, a book that I am writing. I've tried to complete it over five years, and now I've decided to put this into podcast format um, ahead of time. So I'm dealing with the four interventions, uh, one by one, and I think they will each take up a, 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 a part of a podcast. The first one is assessment. The second one is motivational interviewing. The third one is caring, the caring confrontation, or known, better known as the intervention. And then legal committal, which is often part of um, 
the confrontation or whatever. So let's deal with the assessment and why it is a very, very effective and I feel unutilized uh, intervention. I began doing assessments in the in the middle of 1984 after my training as a social worker, which concluded uh, end of 19, which concluded end of 83, and I began working initially in a, a state organization to work back my, my, my funding uh, from the state. And I did generic social work and I was working in communities which were vulnerable and impoverished. I did early assessment work there and there were literally daily walk-in people and there were, I can't say how many hundreds of people I had seen over the eight months that I was there before I went to the Sanka Treatment Centre and began my work in a rehabilitation centre. But during that time period, I had to deal with a lot of alcoholism in the communities that I was uh, involved in working in. Alcoholism was rife. It was causing uh, so much so much problems, problems for children, fear. Uh, women were being abused physically, sexually, uh, emotionally. There was all kinds of problems. There was uh, uh, unemployment there was problems at the workplace. There was all kind of problems. Um, but later, when I started working full time in the treatment facilities, I was involved then already in assessments before people came to the treatment center or when we did uh, planning for uh, caring confrontations, which also I was trained in right. Uh, during 1984. So it's a very long period of time, which is why I believe it is a very, very powerful method. But assessment in itself, if you do it well and carefully, you, one can help the addict and the family members understand what they're dealing with and then move a person gently into a treatment facility, whether outpatient or inpatient. As I've mentioned, I favor doing things step by step. Initially, the, uh, the assessment can open up several opportunities. The one opportunity is that if a person, if my client is not sure whether they want to stop or not, whether they've got a big problem or not, then I initiate and I offer motivational interviewing and or motivational enhancement, which is to help them look at the factors how bad is their problem? Is it a problem? Do they want to do anything about it? If they don't want to do anything about it, how come? If they want to do something about it, um, how come? How is it impacting on their life? And it's a non-judgmental approach where you are actually a professional, but you are non there to, to actually even motivate the person into treatment. You are there to listen to this person and you do it over four to six sessions. That's motivational interviewing. And as I said, can be linked up to a thorough assessment where the person comes to the insight they have a big problem, not just a little problem. They've got a big problem. It's affecting a lot of people in their life and therefore they need to go for treatment. So the assessment can open the door to motivational interviewing. 
Number two, it can open the door to me working with the family members or the employer um, and maybe neighbors or co-workers to help the individual see that they have a serious problem and they need to go into a treatment facility. And so that assessment process then moves into a caring confrontation. And eventually, for example, in the workplace, which is very important and an amazing way in which to get a contractual arrangement with with the person who has a, an addiction to go in and follow through and actually go to a treatment facility because very often this problem comes out in uh, through a disciplinary process, uh, either formal verbal warnings or other uh, patterns in the the employment record of someone. For example, the Monday the Monday problem. People not coming to work on Mondays. Why? Because they were drinking on the weekends. They were drugging on the weekends. So they they don't come in Monday because they know they've got hangovers. People will see they've been drinking or using. And so they have a pattern. And then eventually there's disciplinary action. And eventually people like myself are brought in. The, the, then, then the caring confrontation is, is as I've said, can f- open the door, or you can open the door to a caring confrontation. If, for example, the whole process moves naturally there. However, sometimes what happens is the person who has the problem, who has the addiction, suddenly doesn't come to meetings anymore. They drop out of treatment. Uh, let's, they drop out of the assessment or they drop out of motivational interviewing or they drop out of other general counselling. That's when one then would initiate a caring confrontation and offer the person to come back into treatment or the assessment and then consider uh, going into a treatment facility, either outpatient or inpatient. So I mentioned that I believe starting in a stepped format Start with the assessment. Move on to motivational uh, um, interviewing. Open the door for that. Thirdly, if there's a big problem or little problem, even if there's a massive problem, gently take them through to an outpatient process. I've even added another step. I've in added what I called an informal outpatient process, where I, with a, with a a medical team and with the 12 step groups I will initiate a process of um, counseling with them and outpatient treatment because I've been an outpatient therapist so I know what I can do and how far I can work with them and then I say to them in my agreement if this process is not helping it's not moving ahead from my point of view and from your point of view or from your wife or your partner or your social worker or your counsellor's point of view, then I want you to go to, can we agree that you go to a formal outpatient process or a formal inpatient process? And I discuss that and work that out with people up front. Part of that process of of informal uh, outpatient uh, system that I use, I also lock them into uh, doing drug testing and on the other hand, um, if it's if it's um, alcohol problem, I get them to make use of antibodies, and they must do it. And we monitor it and make sure that it happens. We we, we take tests, 
And then for people who have opiates, uh, heroin and other opiate-related, benzodiazepines-related uh, addictions, I recommend that they go and uh, um, get an, a implant, a naltrexone implant. There are other uh, possibilities nowadays, but naltrexone is something that I use very effectively with an heroin addict um, um, in the mid, uh, well, about 2011, 2012. And that person is still clean and dry as far as I know. And she battled through two failed treatment facilities and then came to me with her employers uh, in a contract and uh, we helped her to get clean and stay clean. So I believe there's a time, especially with opiates, that you need to look at uh, a variety of op options. Right, I've covered uh, assessments. I've talked a bit about motivational interviewing. I'm not going to go into any more detail there. It's a science all on its own, and there are many um, opportunities. I will provide uh, information and uh, references at a later stage. I will attend next to the Caring Confrontation, which is the most exciting breakthrough which came about in the late 70s at the John Hopkins Hospital in the USA. They did work on, on this approach and eventually documented it and I came into contact with this and was trained in this methodology um, in 1984 as part of uh, Sanka, uh, the Sanka treatment, treatment Facility I was working in. Sanka stands for the South African National Council on uh, Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. So I'll attend now to the caring confrontation. Hi, this is Peter Giss. I am now on part six of how to help a loved one with an addiction. I'm going to be de devoting uh, this section, which might be a bit longer, um, to the caring confrontation or generally elsewhere in the world, just known as The Intervention. There's been a lot of movies on it, uh, and uh, I think a lot of false information sometimes, and it's some, sometimes been seen as very scary, and in some cases, some American approaches have said, are very anti this uh, methodology. However, uh, the approach that I'm going to be talking about, I believe is humane, I believe is responsible, I believe it is caring, and yes, it is confrontational. So, just to start out by saying, I'm not going to go through a thorough step-by-step-by-step. By step by step. I have that documented, and it will be in the description inside uh, um, the YouTube video that I'm going to make. But it's also going to be in the description on the podcast platform that I launched this on, which is anchor.fm, and I think it's forward slash Peter Guess. Right, the caring confrontation. First of all, why is it necessary? In most cases, when I've worked uh, with uh, people that have needed, either families that have needed the caring confrontation, is when there's been high resistance to treatment um, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's been 
constant relapses. And, and so the person um, is on, either on the runaway or hideaway or they are, um, they are despairing, they're depressed, they don't believe that there's any hope for them. Um, the parents are also doubting or loved ones or significant others are doubting is there any hope for this person the employer is doubting um, and so sometimes the caring confrontation is almost a last resort um, I want to also say that the caring confrontation I've used in treatment facilities as well when when there's a person who's in treatment, but they're not in treatment, they're just there, their body's there, but their mind is not there, their heart is not there. And so I've arranged an intervention. I've brought in the, the mother, the father, or the spouse. I've brought in employee. I've brought in people that will help break down the defense system. That's where I get back to the defense system. The defenses are operational and operate before treatment, during treatment, after treatment. They're there, they can pop up any time because they grow alongside the addiction, keeping it intact. There are many other reasons for uh, caring confrontation, but obviously it's usually the, de the, the des desperation of the people around the person with the addiction. What other people see that the individual can't see. They don't want to see it. Their defences prevent them from seeing it clearly. And so the caring confrontation is meant to disable some of, if not all of, the defences that the person has been using, all the arguments, all the rationalisation, all the blaming of other people in society and their past and their mother and their father and their employers um, and pr blaming life and being a victim. Um, there are, there are many, many other reasons, and I'm not going to, to mention uh, um, more of those. Um, but yes, a, a caring confrontation sometimes uh, also comes on the back of a, a legal um, problem, a drunken driving offence, for example, or theft and stealing, uh, petty theft, and then the, uh, the, the lawyer, the attorneys involved, want to change the case into a rehabilitation case. It's called something different nowadays, but it's, but they want to change it and um, actually refer the person to a treatment facility. Um, but getting that process happening still is, for me, a caring confrontation and sometimes an ideal con uh, process. Um, the other thing is that a caring confrontation uh, isn't a once-off thing. It doesn't just happen maybe the first time before a person goes to a treatment facility. It can happen many times. In actual fact, um, my one experience is an alcoholic that came to my treatment center and was under my care. He'd been to four other treatment centers, and ours was the fifth one. He'd lost. This was a farmer. He'd uh, he'd lost his wife and and and, and daughter. They'd left home. Um, there was, it was a terrible time on the farm. There were no crops. It was a time of drought, and there were many, many problems, and he was uh, just desperate, and this was the turning point for him. And I was able to, with a team of eight people, he was one of eight people, and I still remember clearly them confronting, they all confronted each other, 
because it was the process we were working with. It was called a marathon session. And sometimes it was two hours, sometimes four hours. It was amazing and very powerful and very difficult. But in this case, it was a very, very caring confrontation, whereas basically everybody halfway through the process of three weeks said to him, and everybody had um, assessed each other, and they all had assessed him and said he is not he's going to be the first to relapse in the group of eight people. And he was adamant. He was saying, I'm not going to relapse. I've finished drinking now. I'm finished with this. And that is an actual fact. My follow-up work indicated that that was his last drink. And in actual fact, after he, I followed him up, he followed me up. He followed me for about four to five, I think it was almost seven years. He tracked me down, he kept my number. He would phone me on his anniversary and told me how he appreciated my work with him and the breakthrough that he had. Okay, I'm a bit emotional at the moment because that was a very, very powerful and very privileged situation to be in. Okay, what is the care and confrontation? As I've said, it's both confrontational, which is the tough love part, and it's caring. It's a tender, loving part as well. So tough love and tender love are both needed. The caring part, first of all. When a person who is resistant to treatment or very unsure or is fighting going to a treatment center, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, they need to be told, number one, that they are loved. Johnny, we love you. Sally, we love you. We are very, very concerned about you. And we appreciate X, Y, Z of you. We know you're trying to stop it, whatever it is. Then each of the, ma 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 each of the people around the table will say this same recipe. They will express their the love and appreciation in one or other form. Then the second part of the confrontation is to say that we are very concerned about the following things. And they have written letters, each, each of them have written a letter to Johnny or to Sally, spinning out all of the concerns that they have, the incidents, the examples, not just broadsword, the exact things that they did. Because you see the alcoholic or the addict um, or the, the gambler, they don't remember these things. Their defense mechanisms suppress the memories of that. And so part of the confrontation is to bring into awareness the facts. So it, it brings the feelings as well, the love, the care, the concern of the members, but it also brings the facts clearly stated so that the person has a mirror and sees themselves and what they've done. These are the things that motivate the person. Now where that goes to is that either if the family is doing this on their own or if they have a chairperson like myself or someone else, an employer, whoever it is, uh, in the group, they then say, Johnny, we want you, we want you to go to an outpatient treatment center and to start, we booked you in tomorrow. Or we want you to go to an inpatient center. We've discussed this with Peter. We've discussed this with the chairperson. We've discussed this with the therapist, the psychiatrist, whatever it is. We want you to go in for treatment because 
this is a serious, severe problem. And then the people in the group wait. And they say to Johnny, Johnny, what do you what do you say about this? So now they're wanting to see is he or she going to comply and work with the team. Now there's a few scenarios that now happen. The one scenario is that they say yes. I I, I see that that I'm affecting a lot of people, I'm damaging myself and, and relationships and this, that and the other. So I need I'm willing to go and fail. So then it's a case of making sure it happens, the booking or prov provisional booking that's been made, uh, and it, it must happen, and must happen very quickly. You must not wait, you must start packing the bags, and you must get going before the person gets cold feet. That's my experience. The other possibility is the person that says the following. They say, no, okay, I see this is a big problem, and thank you, everybody. Um, I will, I promise, I will stop. I will be stopping uh, uh, um, completely. I stop drinking. I'm going to stop drugging. I'm going to pull myself together, pull my life together. But I don't think I need a treatment facility. I, I think I can do this. I'll do this on my own. Okay. Um, now that's very similar to the the next one that comes out where the person just says, I'm not. I'm, I leave me alone. I don't have a problem. I'm. I'm just drinking socially. I'm just uh, having fun. I'm just doing whatever uh, every every other teenager or young adult is doing. This is what we're doing, and you must accept it. Now, in both cases, the critical point of a caring confrontation is the if-then agreement. And what that means is the following. For the person that says, okay, I'm going to do it on my own, we say to him, okay, if you are not clean or off drinking or off gambling in a week's time, or you can say two weeks' time, we're giving you two weeks to prove to us that you are clean and that you don't need any help. If you are clean, we're very happy with you and we'll support you. If, however, you, re you don't stay by your word, you disappear, you run away, you steal our stuff, uh, we find you drinking, we smell you drinking, because we're going to test you in the two weeks. Ah. So the tough confrontation is there's not just a wishful thinking, there's, not, there's an actual fact, a monitoring. So you test a person, whether it's alcohol or anything else, they get tested, they get breathalyzed, they get... And in some cases, I've put people, they've been willing to go on to antibodies. Because if a person is very, very uh, 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 committed, and you realize they're committed to stop, well, then I put them in a process which doesn't look like a counseling process, but I help them. And it might just be antibus if it's alcoholic, and there might be other things for, 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 for another addict. So again, a gentle approach before the tough approach. The other if then is if, um, if you don't go in, so in, in, in this case it's non-negotiable, if you don't go into treatment today, 
if you don't go into treatment, whether it's outpatient or inpatient treatment, then we, unfortunately, because of the severity of your situation and your life and what has happened in the past, we are going to, you are forcing our hand to initiate an involuntary placement in a treatment center. We don't tell them yet that this is a committal, okay, because that's what it actually is, and it's completely legal, uh, and it involves a, a legal social worker or social worker um, following a legal process and uh, a, a report um, through, to, uh, uh, through to the courts. So the if-then agreement is very, very powerful. Um, now the good news I'm going to discuss just now in terms of, well, what happens with um, this whole thing around a legal committal? Isn't that inhumane? Um, isn't that going to force a person to, to just become more of a problem? I'll discuss that in the next part. Thanks again for listening. Hang in there, we're almost finished. Hi, this is Peter Gets again, back with hopefully the final section um, on, uh, on, on interventions, dealing with, uh, discussing with interventions, implementing interventions. And this last section is going to be about the role of a legal committal or a, a legal binding agreement to go into a treatment facility. We are dealing with the theme how to help a loved one with an addiction. And uh, just to say that the, this, uh, this work is for people who are counsellors, whether they are psychologists, psychiatrists, whether they are social workers, whether they are uh, counsellors in training, whether they are um, um, recovery assistants, or there are many, many people, health workers, that can actually make use of the principles, the understanding of what I'm sharing, and that is why I wrote the book, to put these tools um, into every person's hands that is willing to use them, and in some cases, to get more treatment. Right, the legal committal. Is it inhumane? Is it inappropriate? Is it too harsh? Is it divisive? For me, I've mentioned it's part of a caring confrontation. It's a caring confrontation. You're giving the person the opportunity to understand that their situation is dire, that they are going to terminate their life, they're going to overdose further, they're going to do stupid things, there's going to be further drunken, drunken uh, driving offences, uh, they're going to lose their job, which people I've dealt with have, they're going to lose their health, which people I've worked with have, they're going to lose their partners, they're going to lose their spouse, they're going to lose a family, they're going to lose the love of their children, all of which I've seen happen, tragically happen. So the legal committal is not a threat. I want to make it very clear. If it's perceived in the caring confrontation or any discussions about interventions, and it seems as if you're trying to threaten a person, you're going to make the biggest mistake in this process. You need to be very clear. 
If a person says no to the treatment process that you've offered them, um, or even if the treatment process might be the motivational counselling or outpatient counselling or a treatment centre, if they say no or they say, I'll do it my way and then they don't do it their way, they are tested positive, you bring them back and you say, right, this is what's happening. You are either going to a treatment facility, a voluntary one, or you're going to an involuntary, you're going to be involuntary, involuntarily referred to a treatment centre legally. And that legal process is usually, and in my case, always been managed by social workers in collaboration with uh, doctors, uh, their psychiatrists if they have, and the family. The fa he or she puts a, a, an extensive report together to prove to the, f to the law, to the court, that their situation is of such a nature, it follows the, it, it meets the requirements of the law to be seen as a person in need of care and treatment in a treatment facility. Now to fast forward, this, <clears throat> a person gets called, a magistrate issues a, um, an order, the person comes to see the magistrate. It's actually turned into a very humane, uh, warm, caring environment. And all the magistrates' offices I've been at, they are trained to do this because they want to prevent person, people going into and wasting money on a treatment facility um, if, if, they don't, if, if there's a possibility they don't need it. So the magistrate will hear out the report from the social worker. They will ask all the family members that have been asked to actually be there, including the person who is the guilty party, the addict who's there. Okay, he feels guilty or she feels very guilty. I, I can tell you, they are nervous, they are frightened, they are they expecting to be put into a, a treatment bin for many a long, long time and and go to the the salt mines of Siberia. That's how they experience this. Now. What is wonderful is that the magistrates that are tra trained, they're actually trained in intervention. They, what they do is, they, they will say to the person, okay, you've heard this all intervention, this all information. Um, are you willing to go of your own accord, not under pressure by the state, but with an agreement with us here, that you're going to go to a treatment centre that your mom and dad or husband or wife or work have arranged for you, rather than the state treatment centre which we are planning for you to go to. But you go voluntary, rather than involuntary. So what this powerful intervention opens the door to is to other possibilities. When the person who's come to the magistrate thinks there's only one outcome here, and that is getting a committal order, and, um, and, and, and it's a one-way ticket. And they're going to hate it, and they're going to run away from it, or they hope they're going to run away from it, but they're going to be locked up. So that situation can turn into a legal committal to an involuntary facility or an involuntary placement. Or it can turn into a legal document, a law a legal order of the court saying this person 
is going to XYZ, they're going to Narconics Anonymous, they're going to the outpatient facility, um, and we are pending the, uh, 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 the consequences. We are pending the investigation um, for over a period of three years. Um, but if the person relapses, they don't go to treatment, then they will be referred to uh, Stadtfontein, or uh, they'll be referred to Falkenberg, or they'll be referred to whatever treatment facility in your country or in your city. So essentially that's the caring confrontation. There's many other bits and pieces, but I want to give you the heart of what I understood by the caring confrontation, the intervention process. I was trained, as I say, um, in 19... 84 already in this process it is very powerful I've used it many times I've trained other people, caregivers in this methodology and I've given you the essence of it I'll put a lot more information uh, in my uh, podcast platform but if you need to contact me urgently and uh, for assistance please do make uh, make contact with me, there's adequate um, information on the platform, or if it's on a YouTube um, um, video, I will I will put that um, in the in the description. Again, thank you very very much for listening. There's more coming, but I just wanted to fast forward, fast track the process with an overview of the book, and then dive into interventions because of the current situation. I'm hoping to help someone or a couple of other people through. Thank you so much for listening, and I'd welcome your feedback. Um, is there something I've left out? Is there something that's helped you? And um, yeah, so please keep in touch. Thank you for listening.